Well, the bulletin had already been printed when I decided uh, to change a few things uh, with regards to my sermon this morning. And if you look in the bulletin, we see it's 13 verses in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews. We, we did that. That was a while ago. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Um, we're actually going to look at the first six verses, and we're going to cover the remaining verses next week. There's just so much in these six verses that, I, although my clock up here says I've got a, an extra hour uh, to preach, um, daylight savings and all, but um, I'm not going to do that to you. So come back next week. I can always get Tristan to laugh. I, I, Tristan's a good guy to have around. All right. Um, recently, I was invited to speak at a panel uh, later this month, uh, and me and a couple other pastors, and the, the email just said, would you come and share what your concerns are for your church? <laughs> and uh, I started scratching my head. And I'm like, concerns for my church? I mean, every church has. We have, always have concerns, things that we could do better, those kind of things. I'm thinking, what possibly could I talk about? I guess I could let them know that, you know, we need to raise another $1.4 million in uh, a little bit less than two years to pay off this building. Uh, I could share our desire to see our children's ministry and our youth ministry uh, really grow. I could share with them our, our plans to, to really invest in discipleship, where men and women in our church would be discipled and they would grow and mature in Christ, and that they would in turn make disciples themselves. I, I could share about our desire to be a praying church, a church that um, takes prayer more and more seriously in our lives. Uh, and then I got to thinking, though, all of these concerns, and I think all the concerns of any church, would, would be worked out. And, and we as a church um, would prosper in all of these areas if we would but just continue to grow in one area. And that is, if we would but grow in our fixation and our fascination with the grace of God, <laughs> all of these other things will fall into place. Remember how Paul prayed at the beginning of this letter, he prayed that the Father of glory would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would know the gracious hope that God has called them to and that they would see God's unfolding plan to restore all things in, in heaven and earth under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ who, who fills all things. Paul is saying, oh, but if you would just have eyes to see the glory of God's grace. In our passage, Paul speaks of the mystery of God's grace, a mystery that has been revealed. Paul knows that when this mystery of God's grace that is revealed uh, captures our hearts and our eyes and our thoughts, he knows that this is what will fully transform this church and us as well. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 and just verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentile, Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of God. The the grass wither, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to Paul and to your church and to us in your written word um, the beauty of your, of your gospel, um, the glory of your grace. We confess that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to even begin to make sense of your grace towards us. We confess that we are frail and feeble. We confess that we bring into this room even false ideas of who you are. And, and we need you to clear the air. We need you to, to, to show us more clearly in this hour what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. The famous 19th century Irish poet and playwright and author Oscar Wilde once um, described how art has the ability uh, to powerfully transform people. Here's what he wrote. He said, the temperament to which art appeals is the temperament of receptivity. That is, that is all. The the spectator is to be receptive. He is to be the violin on which the master is to play. And the more completely he can suppress his own silly views, his own foolish prejudices, his own absurd ideas of what art should be or should not be, the more likely he is to understand and appreciate, appreciate the work of art in question. It's true, isn't it? Maybe just for a moment, but, but art has the ability to affect us. Notes on a staff become a, a melody that, that enlivens our, our spirit. Or words on paper become poetry that fills us with, with longing and, and hope. And oil on canvas becomes a stirring in us for, for greatness and, and glory. Here's what I hope we take home here this morning. I hope we take home this uh, notion that, that God's grace is artwork for our souls. But instead of ink on paper or oil on canvas, God displays his son on a cross. That's the glory of God's grace given to us. Now, remember, as Wild pointed out, that we can suppress art with our own uh, silly views and foolish prejudices. And it's true, isn't it? Much of the world is repulsed by the idea of Christ on on a cross Atheists like Hitchens and, and Dawkins, the, they, they say Christ on a cross makes out God to be a, a, a homicidal maniac. What kind of God would, would kill his own son? Something's wrong with this God. The picture is it's not glorious to him. There's to atheists. Moralistic do-gooders, too. They, they cannot make sense of the cross either. They, they think it's foolish and unnecessary. They, they like the teachings of Jesus, or at least the ones that they accept, the ones that they think are, are doable. But they have no room on their wall for the tapestry that includes the cross of Christ. If we allow ourselves to become weaved into the tapestry of God's unfolding 
story. Like Oscar Wilde says, we, we become spectators and we become receptive to his glory. And, and in a way, we become like violins in, in the master's hands. We, we see this in, in Paul's life, don't we? Paul was a violin in the master's hands. Each day was a lesson or a performance where, where Christ played a, a melody upon the life of, of Paul. Paul says in verse 2 that this, that this melody making in his life made him what? It turned him into a steward of God's grace. A steward is, a, is like a caretaker of an estate. He doesn't own the estate, but he cares for the estate just as if it were, were his own. We too are to be stewards of God's precious property. We are to be stewards of God's grace. You may say, well, I'm not Paul. Paul's an apostle. He's like a, a superhero, you know. This can't really be a calling for me in my life. Well, the truth is, we, do we not share the same gospel? Do we not share the same Christ? Do we not have the same hope? Do we not read the same scriptures? We, we like Paul, are masters in God's hands. Or as he said earlier in chapter 2, we are God's workmanship. Or another word could be masterpiece. We are, we are created in Christ Jesus to, go, to do good works. So Christian, you are called to steward God's grace. Just as a steward highly values the master's estate and knows all he can about the master's estate and diligently preserves the master's estate, so too we are to value God's grace we are to understand God's grace, and we are to preserve God's grace. Those are our points here this morning. So first, as a steward of God's grace, we must know the value of God's grace. And when we properly value God's grace, we become captivated by it, and we endeavor to be better stewards of it. Unless you value the the master's estate, you're not going to care for it very well, right? So, too, with God's grace. Now, I hope you understand this, is, is, is that there's nothing more valuable to human beings than God's grace. Paul, earlier in the letters, um, spoke of God's salvation and this adoption that we have as Christians. And he said, to the praise of his glorious grace. God's grace is glorious. There is nothing more profound and transformative for the, for the human soul. God's, God's grace brings us um, forgiveness and peace with God. God's grace gives us hope and transformation in the moment. God's grace gives us, um, gives us um, a hope for the age to come. God's grace is, fills us with everything that we need to thrive as human beings. There is, there is nothing more valuable than God's grace. And because God's grace then is infinite in value, we, we are properly to be captivated by it. A question for you. How, how, how much do you value God's grace towards you? What melody does God's grace play upon your soul? Is it a regular melody? Is it a vibrant melody? Is it an ongoing melody? Let me challenge you with this truth as well. Whatever you find most captivating, it will hold you in captivity. Let me illustrate it with a Greek myth. Greek mythology tells the story of a nymph named Clytie. She is in love with Helios, the sun god. And problem is, Helios isn't very much interested in Clytie. He is in love with Leucothoe, 
and this causes Clytie to be jealous and angry, and her jealousy and anger cause her to betray Lukathoe's father. You follow me on this? Lukathoe's father. <laughs> Lukathoe's father punishes Clytie, and what he does is he buries her in the dirt. All day long, she's captivated by Helios as he moves across the sky, but she can't draw closer to him, and he is not in any way interested in her. And there she spends the rest of her life. She actually, though, turns into a flower. Can you guess what kind of flower? Sunflower. And for all of her life, she waits for the, for the sun to rise and she raises her head out of despair and she traces Helios across the sky only to be disappointed and sorrowful come evening time as she lowers her head to the earth. My friends, until the gospel sets us free, we all live like Clytie. Every human being has something that captivates their heart. But in the end, that, that, that captivity takes them captive. The desires that we have hold us captive. Let me, let me give you this example. Say, say, you are, say you're so captivated by the idea of finding a spouse. Well, that captivity will put you, or that captivating idea, which is a healthy, good desire, can become something that takes you captive. Isn't it true if you're, the longer you're single, the, the longer you groan inwardly, and the more your, your hopes and desires begin to, to entangle you and cause you to, to do things perhaps you wouldn't have done before. You, you, you find yourself in bondage, uh, in captivity to, to finding a spouse. It's the same with many, many things in life. Many, many people are captivated with the idea of having a great reputation or to be known by many people or to have status. And, and, and this, being captive to this um, causes us to be in captivity. All kinds of things like presenting an image to other people that you've got it all together, that you're sharp, that you're smart, go out and you buy nice cars. You find yourself in captivity to these things, right? The car begins to fade and you've got to go buy a new one. You see how that works. Anything that you find most captivating, it will hold you in captivity. But let me challenge you also with this idea. So too God's grace. God's grace doesn't just set you free. It sets you free from all other captivities so that you may be captive to Christ. We see this in Paul's life, do we not? Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm in captivity to Christ. I am Christ's prisoner. Do you see yourself that way? Before you answer the question, let me fill in some details. Humanly speaking, Paul was not Christ's prisoner he was in Rome. He was Nero, the emperor's prisoner. While he was in Jerusalem, defending the claims that we're talking about here, Jew and Gentile being one, while he was there making sure that people understood God's grace, unites Jew and Gentile, he was thrown into prison. He was beaten. They wanted to kill him. 
but he's a Roman citizen. And so he pleaded to have his case heard in Rome in Caesar's court. So Paul is sitting in a jail cell when he's writing this letter to the Ephesian church. Paul was the prisoner of Nero. But Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. He wasn't in jail by a mistake. He knew that the unfolding events in his life were being attended to by his risen Lord. Paul once wrote in Galatians chapter 2, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the picture of being set free in the gospel so that we can be bound up in Christ. And you know, this verse, this Galatians 2.20, this is the verse that gives us the motto of Grace Church. Our motto is what? Alive in Christ. In Christ we find new life. Our life is bound up in Him and in His glory and His glorious work in us. No matter where that takes us, no matter what hardship or sorrow or disadvantage or imprisonment, it's not the world's circumstances that have us in bondage. We are, we are held captive to Christ. Do you see, your, do you see yourself this way? Do you see your life this way? Do you, do you see your life so bound up in Christ that no matter your circumstances, no matter where Christ takes you, you see his gracious hand upon you? Or are you like so many Christians who, who are not happy until God somehow sweeps their difficulties under the rug? We must see that every detail of our lives is being orchestrated by Christ and, and therefore we're, we're to come alive to His grace in all of our circumstances. That's the first point. Second is as stewards of God's grace, we, we must understand God's grace. Kind of makes sense. Hello, yeah, makes sense. Paul, though, in this passage, helps us understand the mystery to the gospel, a mystery that's been made known. Three times in our short passage, Paul uses the Greek word mysterion. We translate it with the word mystery, but the Greek word has a little more nuanced meaning. For us, the word mystery means unknown. So we say things like, I don't know. It's a mystery. In the Bible, that's not exactly what mystery means. Mysterion doesn't mean unknown. Rather, mysterion means that which is known but because God has revealed it. That which we know because God has revealed it to us. And God has revealed great details about his grace. And so just as a good steward investigates and gets to know the entirety of his master's estate, so too we are to investigate and understand all we can about God's grace. In verse 3, Paul says the mystery has been revealed. He says that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written. 
In the Old Testament, the prophets of God revealed God's word to God's people. In the New Testament, it's, it's the, the apostles and the prophets. God speaks and reveals to them. Why? Because he wants us to know. He wants us to understand his grace. And it's written down for us in Scripture so we can read it. And guess what? Verse 4 says uh, that Paul expects that we'd be, under, be able to understand this gospel message. What does he say? He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Did you catch that? Paul expects us to understand this mystery. And he also implies he expects us to actually spend time investigating and understanding and plumbing the depths uh, in, the, in the breadth of God's grace towards us. Verse 5 tells us that previous generations of believers were not made privy to the mystery of Christ. He says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and, um, and prophets by the Spirit. You know, previous generations, the Old Testament people of God, they knew God was merciful and gracious and kind. But it wasn't until Christ came, it wasn't until the cross, that the people of God knew more fully um, the magnitude of God's grace. Previous generations knew that God was a forgiving God. They knew that God would forgive their sins. They knew that God used blood in order to make atonement. But whoever would imagine that God himself would have taken on flesh and, and, and lived and, and died and, and poured out his blood so that humanity may have Peace with God and forgiveness. That was a radical idea. It wasn't until, until the cross of Christ came um, that, that the people of God came to see more fully God's grace. So Paul says the previous generations didn't know that. And he also says there's this mystery of God's grace that, the, that has now come that in Christ both Jew and Gentile are now made one. You know, Old Testament Jewish people, they knew that God had a plan and a purpose for the Gentiles, right? I mean, they knew that God spoke to Abraham and said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a mighty nation. Why? So that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. God spoke through the the prophet Isaiah, and and God said that that he was going to lift his hand of grace to the Gentiles. He said that he would send his light to the Gentiles. So, but the problem was that before this mystery of the cross was revealed, there was no previous revelation that, that the Gentiles would actually be on equal footing with the Jews. That the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers would be equal in Christ. Remember in chapter 2, Paul said that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostilities between Jew and Gentile was torn down in Christ's blood. That out of Jew and Gentile, God is making an entirely new humanity. He's not just incorporating the Gentiles into the Jews. He's taking them and making them one new humanity. Paul elaborates on this in verse 6. He says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. It's a threefold um, 
statement that he's making here. In the English text, we really don't pick up on the repetition, but in, in the Greek text, it's, it's three compound words with the Greek prefix, each meaning together. Paul is reinforcing that this unity between believers in Christ and believers with each other. He says, God's grace makes us heirs together, members together, sharers together through this gospel. In Christ, God has reformulated the people of God. There's no longer us and them. There's only us. Both Jew and Gentile are simultaneously connected together to Christ and to each other. And Paul is saying that in Christ, through the gospel, what God has done is he's united the ununitable. That's the picture here. Now, for us today, we're like, we're so... We're 2,000 years removed from Jew and Gentile, and the animosity is kind of like, well, what's the big deal? You know, can't they all just get along, you know? Um, well, how about let's put it in today's terms. The gospel has the ability to unite Tea Partier and progressive. Red state and blue state, illegal immigrant and citizen, Prius owners and Escalade owners. That's what he's getting at. And what the gospel does is it makes everybody an ex. I'm an ex-Jew. I'm an ex-Gentile. I'm no longer that. I'm an ex-Tea Partier. I'm an ex-progressive. You know, I'm I'm an ex-master. I'm an ex-slave. I'm an ex-fill-in-the-blank. That's what we must understand about the gospel. Paul is saying that... That the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that your past does not matter. A lot of us are going, yeah, I know, my sins are forgiven. No, I'm saying your past, all the good stuff, too. The stuff that you hold and cherish causes you to maybe look down on other people. I wasn't as bad as that person, you know. I can't believe they come to church, right? Your past status or your presumed favor counts for nothing. All people are equally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. And all in Christ are together as one. The playing field is is leveled. We're all sinners. All of us. And, And our only hope is in the grace of God. Jesus gave plenty of examples of this that really infuriated the people in his day. One of they're both it seems like it always happened at dinner time, right? One was when he went to Levi, the tax collector's house. Jesus had called Levi and welcomed into his embrace and into his fellowship. And Levi says, well, watch, i got a party. It's Friday. Why don't you come over? We've got a DJ, you know. We've got some you know, Red Bull and vodka shots. Come on by. We're partying up, you know. Some of you are shaking your head. Come on. I mean, it was a party. And there's a bunch of tax collectors there. And I don't know what the religious people were doing. I don't know why they were in there. Maybe they just came because they knew Jesus was there. And they said, what the heck are you doing here? Spending time with these people. To share a meal with somebody meant that you accepted them. And, and so Jesus was accused of, of, of being a, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Then there was a dinner at Simon's house. He was a Pharisee. And a woman came in. We don't know the exact details, but most likely she was a prostitute. And she comes and she anoints Jesus, his feet, first with ointment and then with her, her tears. She knew the grace 
before which she was kneeling. She came to him. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the religious leader said, you must not be a prophet, Jesus, because if you knew who she was, you wouldn't spend any time with her. Jesus forgave her sins and sent her away in peace. And the Pharisee was even more irked at him for doing that. My friends, the gospel levels the playing field. It, it, it doesn't matter what your past was. No, it doesn't matter how broken or sinful you were or how good you think you were. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And this is the, this is the mystery that Paul is talking about, that, that we as God's people, as stewards of this gospel of grace, we need to get to know this more, do we not? Final point is, as stewards of God's grace, we must preserve the message of God's grace. You know, consider a good steward on a master's estate. Do they not go out and look to mend the fences? Do they not make sure the leaks in the roof are, aren't coming, you know, or aren't there anymore? Do, do they not make sure the, the affairs of the state are profitable and they, they pay the master's bills on time? Isn't that true? So, too, we must work to protect and, and to preserve this gospel of grace or it will fall into ruin. Now, in our churches, the greatest threat, the greatest intrusion upon this estate of God's grace is what? It's the intrusion of the law. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the law is a, is a good thing. It, it reveals the holiness of God's character. It provides us with a clear understanding in our fallen state of just really who we should be as human beings. But the law cannot save you. And it cannot unite you to other people. And in fact, when our focus is upon the law, it only can cause discord and disharmony in the church. God's law has a place in our lives, but it's not to be a priority in our lives. And, you know, there's this other truth as well, is that the natural state of the human heart defaults towards the law. The natural state of the human heart heart um, looks towards the things that we can do uh, to prove ourselves worthy or to show ourselves worthy to other people. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. You don't need to affirm the Ten Commandments in order to live as one under the law. Do we not tend to value ourselves and other people upon uh, the things we do or don't do, the things they do or don't do? The thought that we need to consider is that if we aren't continually preserving the priority of grace in our lives, we will become, we'll become captivated by the law, and it will hold us in bondage. It's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. Are you familiar with Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome is when you, you, someone takes someone captive, and, and over a period of time, the person in captivity actually begins to develop a, an affection and a bond for his or her captives. It got its name, the Stockholm Syndrome, from a bank robbery that didn't end up so well for the robbers uh, in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. One of the captives was a bank teller. Her name was Kristen Enmark. And during her captivity, there's a time when she began to shiver. And one of her captives, a man named Olsen, gave her a jacket. And there was a time when she was fearful. And he came and he encouraged her. And he, he even gave her, a, of all things, 
a, a bullet, as a, as a keepsake. No gun, though, just the bullet. In a few days, the, the robbers were arrested. But check this out. She had developed such an attachment to Olson, her, her, the one who brought her into captivity, that when she got out of, of, of captivity, she broke her marriage engagement off. My friends, that's what the law can do to us. We've been made alive by God's grace. We've been called to walk in God's grace, to walk in the Spirit. And yes, as we do that, we we fulfill the works of the law. But when we take our eyes off of Christ, and we take our eyes off the gospel of grace, and we start looking towards things that we can do to approve ourselves or to be approving to others, we become captive to the law. And when we become captive to the law, it creates divisions in the body, and it causes us not to flourish in the gospel, but rather to live with great hypocrisy in our own lives, to live feeling with a sense of feeling of brokenness or pridefulness. Paul says that it's so important that we get the gospel right so that, that we do not let the law creep back into our lives. That's what he was arrested for. He fought over it vehemently. To, to make sure that the church um, would never allow the law to have its wrong place in the believer's life, a, pri- a position of priority. And so he said the Jew and Gentile are alike. The law, the law didn't save the Jew, nor will it save the Gentile. Imagine, imagine it this way. Imagine, um, imagine you were traded, an NFL football player, and you were traded to a new team. Problem was... <laughs> Last year, that team won the Super Bowl. And now you join into this group of people. They're still reminiscing. They're still showing off the ring. They're still doing the same pregame warm-ups that they did before the the Super Bowl victory. They're, They're still reliving those old glory days. How hard would it be to be a member of that team? I'll learn the chants. I'll learn all the different things. I'll maybe retell some of the stories and do some high fives. They're not going to look at you as, a, as part of the team. Well, you're part of the team, but you weren't a part of that team. That's the mindset of many of the Jews who became Christians. They were, they were like, well, we're the privileged ones. We're the ones who had the law. We're the ones who've been clean and holy all these years. You're, you, were, you were a, a, a pagan worshiper of false deities and unclean. I, I mean, you could be a part of this, but you can't have supremacy. You, you can't have the high positions. And imagine what that would do to the Gentiles. They would, they would say, okay, well, I'm saved by grace, but I, I guess I better get circumcised. and I better learn about these feasts. and I better learn Hebrew. You know, I better memorize the Torah like these really righteous people. And you can have this in a church. You say you're a new follower of Christ and, and you come into a church and you're amazed at God's grace. And then, and then some Christian or some preacher, a lot of preaching is very moralistic. You leave the church service feeling you've got to pray more. Uh, you've got to evangelize more. Um, all these things you've got to do in order to be a good Christian, right? And so you can get this idea that in order for you to really have worth or value as a Christian, you've got to do all these things. The problem is, when, when, when we come, become captivated by the law, is, is that it, it leads us either to despair or pridefulness, right? 
Despair kicks in when you turn from grace to the law because you end up falling on your face. You know, other Christians seem to have it all worked out. If only I could do this well or do that well, you know. Instead of turning to the, to the tapestry of God's grace and receiving afresh um, the grace of God, you become captivated to the law and you hang on to it. And its grip will not give you life. You know this is something that you've made a priority in your life when you start finding yourself saying things like, if only I were, you know. If only I were better at this. If only I were more like so-and-so. They seem like they got it all together. Guess what? There's, maybe they're a hypocrite. How do you know they got it together? Maybe just put on a good show on Sunday. You have no idea of the, the, what's really going on in their own heart and how far they can be from Christ. I encourage you, if that's you, to, to, to look back at the tapestry of God's grace. Allow Him to play afresh that, that melody of the gospel in your heart. Allow him, to, Christ, to say to you that in me, you are already everything. In the gospel, we, who we are is Christ Jesus already. It can lead us to despair. It can also lead to pridefulness. Pridefulness kicks in when you think you've got all your stuff together, you know. Usually it's just in one or two areas. I'm good at praying or I'm, I'm good at serving around the church. You're really good at cleaning up and you get all irked at other people would leave messes around, you know. And so you, you, you value somebody's worth based on how well they clean up after themselves or their kids or all these things. And you feel, well, I guess I'm the one who gets the work done around here, you know. That's just one example of how it leads to pridefulness. But chances are, you become a walking contradiction. You, you, you talk about grace, but grace is only for you. It's not for other people. What we see here is that when we're truly captivated by God's grace, it's not just grace for us, it's grace for others. Do you see that in verse 2? Paul says, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. When we mature in our understanding of the gospel and when we, when we fight over the gospel, um, we are become a people who recognize God's grace isn't just for me. It's for you and for you and for you. And how that looks in your fellow brother or sister's life is different than yours. They might need grace in different areas than you. The areas where you're strong, they're weak. But guess what? Where they're strong, you're weak. We need to fight for this reality that God's grace is, is grace not just for us, but for others. We need to preserve this, that we're all equal in God's kingdom, Jew and Gentile, male and female, prostitute and prude, convict and prosecutor. We're all made the same in Christ Jesus. We're all saved by grace, not by the law. So the only proper place for the law is, is, is that it leads us to our ongoing need of a Savior. Yes, it shows us how we are to walk as, as children of the light. But when we look to the law and esteem the law, we're going to fail, we're going to be uh, despairing, or we're going to be prideful. The gospel frees us from all captivity so that we may become captive to the only captivity that really allows us to flourish. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper.
What's it also called? It's called communion. We commune with our Savior, and we commune with each other. That's why we do it as a group. We don't go home and you know, do this by ourselves. <laughs> we are communing with each other and with our Savior. As we come forward, I want to remind you that, that this table here is not a table of the law. It's, it's a table of God's grace. When we come forward, we need to be reminded that who you once were is not who you are now. All of your failings have been nailed to the cross. Even all of your good deeds that, that you want to esteem, those two, those, those are no longer you. you. You are an ex-whatever. In Christ, though, this table is for you. As you approach this table, let us pause to stand before this tapestry of God's grace. Let us see our Savior. Let us see God's redeeming love to us in Christ Jesus. Let us be reminded that God's love to us is of infinite value, and therefore it alone is, is that which, which should be captivating for us. And know that as we are captivated by God's grace, it, it transforms us, trans- makes us stewards of his grace. It causes us to value his grace and to understand his grace and to preserve and to protect his grace. May we be faithful stewards of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, your words are true. We thank you for the apostles and the prophets. We thank you that you've revealed to them something that is magnificent in our eyes. It's hard for us to understand, but we do understand it. We're saved by grace, not by works of the law. Help us to treasure this I, this truth. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to, to be reminded um, that we are but instruments in your hands, Jesus. Help us not to be despairing over our circumstances, but know that we are bound up in you and in your glory. May we be a people who receive your grace, not just for ourselves, but may we be people who give your grace towards others. Uh, we, we admit that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit for this work. We are feeble. We are frail. And um, we pray your Spirit's work upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.